Thanks for listening to the show. Join us online at playvolutionhq.com and learn how to support the show at explorationsearlylearning.com slash support. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello and welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd, the very first episode where I get to introduce myself as Heather Burnt Santi. Yay! Because the nerd got married. And I'm honored to be the first married guest. Oh, yay! <laughs> so if they don't recognize your voice, and how could they not recognize your voice? Right. The co-host is Lisa Murphy. Hello and thank you. Lisa fucking Murphy as she hyphenates. Come on. <laughs> Get with the program. Sorry. I gotta I gotta explicit this one right out of the box. <laughs> Aren't they all? Or only the ones with me? <laughs> only when I remember that there are swear words. Then I tell Jeff he needs to do the explicit thing, but but it's I don't think it's every episode. It's you and Travis is what it is. Yeah, I was gonna say, me and Travis probably. <laughs> all right, so Lisa and I are ready to talk and talk about blocks. And 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 again, if you know Lisa, you know this is her baby. It is. I reread my thesis. I reread my thesis in preparation for this. Oh my goodness. Um, so read your quote. Yeah, so here's the quote. The quote is actually written by Margie Carter in the foreword of the book uh, whoa, what's it called? Comprehensive Creative Block Play. Creative Creative Block Play. A Comprehensive Guide to Learning Through Building. There you go. Which, discussing the book could be a whole other podcast, but let's not do that one just yet. Um, but here's, here's, the the quote. here's the quote. Margie Carter wrote a foreword, and she says, If you follow the research on play, the interconnectedness of all learning domains, and the growing recognition of the skills required for the 21st century, the benefits of block play are indisputable. Why then, in the name of school readiness, is block play marginalized, if not disappearing from children's classrooms? End quote. And you so, want to say? Well, I, I want to say lots of things. <laughs> um, but to specifically to your quote, I would probably not argue because that sounds, you know, you know, and that's not my my thing. But I don't think it's always in the name of readiness. And and the very limited amount of research that I and I would even put parent, uh, quotes around research that I had to do for my masters to write it. One hundred percent of the respondents in my study said they valued block play, mm -hmm. but when you actually dug deeper, there were variables that reinforced the fact that when you walked into their classroom, it didn't appear as though block play was being valued, and a lot of times it wasn't because of a pressure of, of readiness or, or academics or next year we're going to kindergarten, a lot of times it was space issues, um, it was time issues, and it was the fact that a lot of the teachers had not themselves had any prior experience either as adults in their training or as children using the materials. And, and so my, my experience, I guess, is a little bit the flip side of that because when I read this, I thought, 
wait, blocks are disappearing from classrooms because every classroom I go into has blocks, but I see it, I see them being underutilized or undervalued or only there because it's on a checklist somewhere. And yeah, I went and looked and, you know, Indiana licensing lists blocks as one of the things you have to have in a licensed center classroom. Um, the Paths to Quality, which is our QRIS, says you have to have blocks. And also here are some accessories you might have and lists off the very typical traffic signs, block people, cars, um, accessories. And, um, and then I looked in the NACI accreditation criteria, and that made me mad for a different reason. Um, but they also include blocks <laughs> as something that you have to have. Um, uh, but there's no follow-up. I mean, it, be, it then does become a checklist, right? So they sit on it's, the it's shelf. Not telling you, right. So somebody walks in with their clipboard and their pen, and they see that you've got it, and you tick mark it. But meanwhile, you come back on a regular basis, and you see that the things are never getting taken off the shelf. Mm -hmm. and, and but the I, also, I also know, sorry, I'm yelling. I, I also know, to your point about how you're, you had said, what do you mean blocks aren't always in the classroom? And, and granted, it's not research. It was very anecdotal. Uh -huh. um, but back in the, the late the 90s, people were talking about um, looking out their classroom windows and seeing blocks in the dumpsters and teachers uh. being like, like forced to get rid of the blocks in order to make room for something else. Uh -huh. um, and I mean, just, just dumpsters full of, of unit blocks. And, and it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Where? Where? <laughs> and and to, even to her quote, when you reread it, I drew it in the side of the book talking about um, the learning domains and allow me to be the, the devil's advocate of clarifying here. To me, that means the four domains of developmentally appropriate practice, right? So you've got cognitive language and literacy, social, emotional, and physical. That's how I would interpret the learning domains. And there is nothing but research out there talking about how a well-equipped block area reinforces, meets, deepens, develops all four of those areas. Yeah. So, so I would probably not to overly pick the quote apart. That's I would actually do. say that <laughs> in in the face of having tons of research that shows how just simple blocks meets every single developmental domain, why are blocks being pushed out? I mean, I could probably get rid. Of the of the academic readiness argument with this entire conversation, and if that does that make sense, it does, and that's that's something. And I think this is kind of along the lines that you're talking. That's one of the things that drives me bonkers in most, even advocacy advocacy conversations, conversations about things we want to see being offered for children. It's always because of what we can get from them later. It's never just because children deserve this right now in their lives because of the value it brings and because of the fun it can be. And, okay, maybe it gets them ready for school. Maybe it gets them ready for 21st century jobs at some point, and that's wonderful, and I believe it does do those things. But also today, it's a good thing for the children to have. You know, I need to find out who said that quote, because I paraphrase it a lot, and I don't know who to give it credit to, that we're mortgaging, we're, we're mortgaging their their current and their name of their future. Uh -huh. some, some, it's, a, it's a gross paraphrase, but <laughs> it, it sums up exactly what you just said. Yeah. Or we're mortgaging, yeah. mortgaging their childhood in the name of the future, or maybe it's the vice versa, but... Yeah, we're so busy about worried about what's coming next that we're missing what's unfolding. Right. 
right in front of us. Or, or that the only reason kids should have anything is for what we can get out of it. <laughs> or some future thing that they might get out right, of it. Like yeah. it's not okay for to just be okay. In fact, Jeff and I potted this morning. We recorded four episodes to put in the queue. And one of them we talked about like, when are we going to be able to get rid of some of the, the what, did, what did he call them? I got my cheat sheet right here. Hold on. He called them the modifiers. When can it just be play? Yeah. Why, why does it have to be purposeful play or meaningful play or, or, or real play or deep mm-hmm. play? Why can't it just be play? And I realize the word just often undermines the credibility. However, in, in that conversation, I would love to be at a place where we could say the kids played all day and right. everybody at the table metaphorically realized the depth yeah. of, of what and, that statement means. And I, I think there's a difference in saying, when can we say just play? And saying, oh, well, are they just playing? Like, I think those are two di- very different just. Yeah, so, yeah. I, so I, I, I get agree. what he's saying. But I, I'm right there with you and with him on that because, and I think you've heard me say this already. Um, there's someone that I've been in conversation with a lot lately who, whenever I say play, they have to interject, but play with a purpose. <laughs> no. See, yeah, that's purposeful play. Freaking play. <laughs> and, and, and not to now, now I feel like I'm processing the podcast that I did this morning, but, but then <laughs> I circle back to what's your then definition of purposeful play and how is what I'm talking about different? And then when is play not purposeful? You know, read me your criteria. Yeah. And to, yes, exactly. And who defined purpose? Oh yes. It makes me crazy. So we can go. Yeah. So we're agreed. (laughs) We We can go on and on about that, but let's, let's go back to blocks for a minute. And, and the reason blocks were on my mind when, when we were trying to decide what to podcast about is because, I'm with preschool age now, again, after a long time, and um, so we've got the giant shelf of wooden unit blocks with the little contact paper shapes on the shelf that show them where to put it away, and we have a few kids who really love the blocks and are there all the time, and we have several who never go there except to knock things down, much to the chagrin of of other adults, and um, and I I have caught myself cringing as I watch kids get blocks out because I don't want to put them back on those freaking contact paper shapes again. I hate those. <laughs> Me too. I never so had those. I'm, I'm sort of plotting out a little mini research project in my mind that I'm going to do with the, with this. But that, So that's where I am right now is I caught myself the other day being annoyed that kids were playing with blocks. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? But I mean, I, me? and I, and I get that. But but then I'm going to circle it back to my default thing of it being environment, right? The, so the environment is setting the stage as though the, the, there there's these extra layers of procedures that have to happen. And I would and I've never been in this classroom to see, uh-huh. but I would venture to guess that there are some kids who are not going to that spot simply because of that. Oh, sure. You know, I don't know, but I'm it, there's I, it's always environment. It's very or experience. It's environment or experience. It's very rare that I, I mean, very rare. Shoot. I don't even know if I've ever met a kid who who just didn't get blocks or didn't like blocks or, or the idea of constructing something that might not have been unit blocks. But, you know, let's get some Duplos or some Legos or some PVC pipe. So the construction element, I think, is universal. Um I have found that the space and not enough stuff mm-hmm. 
and if there's an adult hurry to clean to clean it up. Yeah. So, um, so can we talk about accessories? In sure. A area for a little bit because there is that um, that sort of catalog approach, the just school supply approach of um, of stocking your block area where you have. Okay, so it's historical, right? Uh-huh. So it she called them do whiffs, Caroline Pratt. Oh, okay. Who is who invented? She she is who invented what we now call unit blocks. So the blocks that you have on your shelf, probably everybody who's listening, the unit blocks were invented by Caroline Pratt in New York City, um, and we could talk about that another time. But she <laughs> initially, well, just two women were the major contributors to blocks as a thing. Ooh, ooh. And, <laughs> so anywho but she called them she called them do wits which i love i haven't um, heard that before I, I i love that do it and so do wits were little like handmade people animals things to add to the block area so uh-huh. i think probably nowadays it, it has been kind of gobbled up by a more of a commercial lens um but you know i i don't think there's let me think about what I'm about to say. I, I think the the list of what could be potentially added to a block area is probably as long as, you know, around the world 20 times. Sure. But I don't think that means you need to have all of that crap in there. It depends on the kids and the age and yeah. where they are developing. Because I would the argue that. the block play they're in. Exactly. You know, you don't need a lot of quote unquote do its if we can use that right now for this conversation. Uh-huh. You don't need a lot of those extras or additions if the kids are still, you know, just schlepping things around. You know, the, that first stage of transporting blocks, moving stuff around, then those accessories on the shelf are meeting a need for somebody uh-huh. else. Uh-huh. Well, I just, I, again, just my own anecdotal experience, other than cars, I don't see children using those standard stop, you know, traffic signs and people and um, whatever else is in the block area. What? The, the, stop, the stop signs and that kind of shit only, sorry, nope. I, I forgot. I I'm already screwed it up with, in the intro. But so. we, <laughs> I never saw, ever, ever saw that stuff until I learned about Eckers. Right. When, when. Like that first phase of Eckers started like listing the stuff you should see in certain centers. Uh-huh. That was the first time that I saw this overwhelming like, oh my gosh, we need stop signs and yield signs and all of this. Yeah. But it, kids are walking in their neighborhood. There's no in, in experiential context to a lot of this, but I would get a five on that section because I have something that this woman with a clipboard has. So I, to me, everything, Heather, and you know this, we've known each other a while now, it comes back to the intention. Yeah. It's not that having the signs are a bad thing. It's why are they there? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I think, because um, it's a NACI criteria now, too, to have a lot of that stuff for accreditation. So, um, but I've, I've got to tell you while we're, while we're in this spot in the conversation, um, the, the podcast that Tiffany and I did a couple years ago, um, when I first read this, this book, um, and I had some strong reactions, uh, is well, I think what eventually led to me getting fired from that job. Oh, really? <laughs> so I'm having all these flashbacks now. Yeah, because I, I was ran, I was ranting about uh, I was ranting about the contact paper shapes on the shelves um, 
which also people do and they think that they've done some kind of teacher thing, but it's the intention. Did you do it because you really think this is a useful thing for the children and is your experience that it's helpful for them or is it because someone told you it had to be there? Um, but anyway, teachers that I was working with at the time had that in their block shelves and thought I was singling them out to my huge podcast right. audience. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, everybody I know has them in a big, back in the day, Target used to sell these big tubs, yeah. big plastic tubs that were like this. I, I don't know. I don't even know for your, for your auditory listeners yeah. here, um, probably three, three and three feet off the ground with these white corded handles on the, yes. they were like buckets. Mm-hmm. They were massive buckets. That and milk crates is what I've always stored the blocks in. Yeah. And the kids who yeah. needed to put them on the shelf, then there was shelf space for them to put them on. But 99% of the builders that I've ever hung out with didn't need them to be shape matched for their work. And I don't think that that helps in the cleanup, which is the other reason I've heard is that, well, it, it encourages children to help clean up their blocks afterwards, which is not a priority for no, me, it doesn't. but it also doesn't do that. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and actually that's part it's of this, this classroom research. In- yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That's I, part I, of what I want to do is just do some, some observation of how it's being used now and which children are using it and which blocks they use. Is it just the front four from every shape pile? Um, document that for a while and then just throw it into buckets and document how it changes or if it changes. Well, I, I as a research nerd, yeah. would love to then see how did, did the block, like my question right now, gun to the head, would mm-hmm. be does the desirability of block play increase when you eliminate that matching cleanup mm-hmm. expectation? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I am too. And and I think it will just make me feel better, <laughs> which is a big, a big thing too. So, so I, I think that maybe um, there's some people listening who've never heard the seven stages of block play. Ah, uh, so, so let's, let's throw those out. Okay. So um, wh- what I would like to point out mm-hmm. is that it's based on research that was done again by two women in the 1930s. And girls don't play with blocks. No, they just research them and write books and scholarly articles about them. Um, so in the 1930s, uh, two women last in Guanella and Bailey. Um, and I, I love it because they published under their first two, like many women did back in the day, but their two first letters of their first and middle names. And so then no their last name. They were women. Well, yeah, right. And, and like, so now, I would love to go back and like find if there's like fan fiction about them. Like, did people <laughs> think they were dudes? You know, and then that's why we all know their research. So Black back in the nineteen researcher 1930- fanfic. That is what right? I'm missing. <laughs> right? I'll there's get a Bethany whole, on just it. lost like a third of your listeners. No. Um or maybe we get we a episode about fanfic, Lisa. <laughs> um so based on their research. Uh, Gwinella and Bailey. Now everybody goes back to these same, and and I wanna I wanna come back to this because I I wanna tell you what my original research idea was, and then I wanna I wanna at least get, be able to hear myself say it because I still think I wanna go back and and explore this. Okay. So back in the 30s, the work of Gwinella and Bailey. Um, Hirsch outlines it in the Block Book, that very famous NAYC you know Block Book uh-huh. with the black and white pictures in it. That's so awesome. Yeah. 
but it's still the same stages that were identified back in the 30s. So stage one is that transporting, the carrying around of blocks. Um, so if you're listening and you work with little guys, you see this on a regular basis. They've got the, you know, two or three blocks in their hands and they walk across the room, they're walking across the yard, or they put it in something like a, a, like a Tonka truck or a wagon and they want to move the blocks around. So there's no actual construction per se. It doesn't have to just be little guys. It could be like a four-year-old who's never seen blocks before, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to circle back to that, that you'll, based on the fact that a lot of, uh, let's use the word pre-Kers, threes, fours, fives, coming into program potentially for the first time, you can't guarantee anymore um, or assume that they've had exposure to those materials. So it is very common nowadays to have four-year-olds who are kind of backfilling and they will move through those stages quicker, but, uh-huh. they, still but they still need do to go it. through exactly yeah. all stages. So that's stage one, transporting carrying blocks. Uh, number two is creating um, either vertical stack, like they're literally just taking all the blocks and stacking them up. They usually are matching. They're the same size. They don't have to be, but it's it's – Literally just one on top of the other and or the the track. Everybody knows the track. Uh, so yeah. you'll you'll get that track mindset. I'm making a track. It's just one <laughs> block lined up all over uh-huh. and then teachers smell crabby, you know, keep it on the carpet and all that kind of crap, um, right. which incidentally the title of my research was called Get a Bigger Carpet. I'm nice. making um, – <laughs> So it's vertical or, or horizontal rows of blocks is stage two. Three is bridging. So they've got two things going on, and they find a way to connect them. Usually it's very um, – this is what I wish you were, visual, like recording, recording. It's kind of like that – I always call it the Roman, the Roman knot arch, like two, <laughs> two six-inch blocks is parallel with each other and then a block on top of it, uh-huh. like that first kind of little bit of a structure uh-huh. per se. Um, and then enclosures come next. Uh, sometimes with a roof, sometimes without a roof. Um, but there, this is when the do-wits or the animals or the cars kind of come into play. Um, the, the, the most common thing you'll hear with any group is that they're making like a zoo or a barn or a pen of a some pen. sort. We have lots of fences. fences. <laughs> yes, fences for animals, especially in Indiana, um, for <laughs> animals. Right. Or or houses, some kind of a, a sanctuary for the people of people. So a lot of times the first enclosures can be very much depend, uh, not dependent on, um, but reflective of the do with that are added to that particular space, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like kids will build an enclosure around animals if even if they don't have animals, <laughs> if those are the things that are available. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, then stage five is more elaborate structures with an emphasis on balance and patterns. Um, and then six turns into naming them. I am making a hospital. I'm making a house. This is my bedroom, things like that. Um, it, in the research, they do say that the naming of a structure might have previously occurred, but the names were not necessarily related to the form of the construction. So by stage six, there's a little bit more of that cognitive processing. Like I am making a thing and this is the thing I specifically want to represent. And I know what it's called maybe in my community. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then stage seven is what they call representational um, creation and construction based on the child's actual experience. Like I was in the hospital because I broke my leg. I'm now making a hospital. You know, my grandma lives at the beach and I'm making a beach house. So it very much becomes um, experiential based at that juncture. And that would be stage seven. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh. Hey, we need your support to keep the podcasts flowing. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash support to learn how. One of the big things you can do is shop Amazon with the link we provide. You buy your cat food, you buy your kids' books, you buy whatever it is you buy on Amazon, you pay the regular price. We get a small percentage of it. Everybody wins. A lot of people are doing it. It really supports the shows, and we really appreciate it. Give it a try. Thanks.